So we got straight to the heart And I was a coward and worse to my shame I fell hard upon the weightless weight But wasted every day Till you emerged in the park Like some patron of Washington Square For the first time in a long time Inside every face to clear So I had to find me a job But I didn't think I would hold this one down It's the same old stinking feeling of fucking hammers in my back But you are good to me still And when my old man was near the end You loved his broken body in the same way that I did And more, you're the angel of rain. And what's more, the 
Hi, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it is Friday, December 10th, 2021. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ramatouche Ohlone land, and for more information, please go to our page at weeklyrev.org. Click on the Land Acknowledgement tab, and there you will find a list of resources, maps, places to donate, and much more. Got a show for you today. I don't use adjectives because I can't predict the future. I, I mean, I feel like I'm fairly intuitive and also don't know how the show's going to go. Um, I would love to say I've gotten a really exciting, optimistic, uplifting show today, and maybe that's true. We'll find out. Provide some news stories as well as some music in between the news to cleanse the palate and remember that there's a lot of beauty in the world, and one way is through art. So glad to share some music with you all. The first song we heard was by a band called Gang of Youths. That was the Angel of 8th Avenue, and then Raised Eyebrows by the Feelies, and we'll play some more music throughout the program. Sometimes I start off with a rant of sorts or a reflection of the week. And yeah, as one gets older, been doing the show, I'll be ending the show in a few weeks. So feeling sad about that and also grateful to have had the time here. I've learned so much from the folks I've met here and the people I've spoken with and articles I've read. And uh, it's really, I think, helped inform my worldview. And certainly it's helped to radicalize me in a very positive way, for sure and to to keep on asking questions which is always important to do and it's you know here in san francisco where the wealth disparity is so incredibly large and uh have, we have empty houses and apartments and i feel like i say the same thing every week but it's still true and there are people many of whom are from san francisco who have been evicted from their homes and or people who cannot afford housing here and we've got uh, a mayor who refuses to house people, uh, especially even during the pandemic when these some hotel rooms were paid for and some people still did not receive housing. And we have a mayor who <sighs> decides to uh, offer free parking spots over the holidays, yet uh, not free muni and free public transit, which would help a lot more people and would just be more environmentally friendly, among other things. And we've got a lot of uh, elected officials. And the, th the thing is... Uh, Yes, it's, uh, of course, good to not have fascists in office. And also, it seems that a lot of folks, when elected, end up making a lot of compromises and end up kind of selling out the people uh, that they're supposed to represent. And it seems pretty obvious that the change comes from people, comes from striking and riots and organizing and mutual aid and community building. And I know it seems kind of maybe hypocritical for me to be saying that alone here in the studio. However, that's from, from what I've gathered from uh, history. That's what makes a difference. And yes, you can have people in office passing laws here and there, but more often than not, they are working in the interest of capital and the interest of the state. And also something else I was thinking about this morning was how uh, the state ends up, or at least here, it'd be one thing just to like ignore unhoused people, and in some ways that would cause less harm to them than what happens through DPW and through the police who end up stealing from them, assaulting them, arresting them, ticketing them. So many people have like lost irreplaceable possessions such as like childhood pictures, their parents' ashes, like I'm not exaggerating here, medications, and those are stolen by people that... Uh, we pay our tax dollars too, so it just—it's so disturbing that uh, the money seems to go towards punishing people and criminalizing poor people instead of 
ensuring that everyone has what they need, which would make a better world for everyone. That's what I don't get. It's uh, it's like clearly everyone can see things are not good. Things are not fair and just. And uh, why not ensure that everyone has their basic needs met? It, it seems so backwards to me. But again, that's kind of the, the history of this country in a lot of ways. It's stealing land and using violence against people. Anyway, um, did I say earlier this might be an uplifting show? I said might. That's why I can't predict it. But that's just how, how I view things, how a lot of us view things, and I would want to share that. Also, just you know, getting older and thinking about my own behaviors and how growing up in this country, it's hard not to internalize a lot of these ideas and behaviors that are that are harmful to ourselves and to others and trying really hard to stop these behaviors, which can be really difficult. And the idea that we always have to be in competition and trying to unlearn that and to recognize that there is enough for everyone, there's enough resources to go around. And that's something that uh, trying to really work with and also just, you know, forgive my younger self and have compassion for my younger self. I think especially, you know, not still working on a lot of things, of course, and behaviors and ideas and thinking back to my younger self and sometimes under the influence, sometimes not, and just how I treated others and treated myself and wanting to have uh, compassion that I was able to maybe forgive myself for that in some ways and uh, move past it and accept it and try to be a better person in the present and in the future. That's what one can do, right? The end of the end of the year, a lot of reflection. Try to reflect a lot, regardless of the time of year. However, I think, given that the show is ending, and <sighs> wanting to share my truth for what it is, and to say I appreciate all the folks who have helped me, and apologize for all the folks I've hurt over the years, and uh, work on trying to be a better person. Which easier said than done, of course, but. So that's that's where I'm at at the moment, and do have some articles. Um, do I have positive articles? Not well. Some positive news, at least, is that the workers from a Starbucks um, outside of Buffalo, New York, were able to unionize. So the very first ever Starbucks workers unionized, and you can follow more information. Follow them on um, Twitter at SB Workers United, and there are the folks from the Buffalo area, and the Elmwood, I guess, was their store. It's the first Starbucks store in the United States that was able to unionize. And this happened uh, yesterday on December 9th. So that's some positive news. There have been a lot of organizing uh, along with uh, in labor rights. So that's some positive news that's happening. Also, continue to boycott Kellogg's because apparently they're still treating the workers like crap and said they're going to hire a lot of scabs. And I may get to a little bit later. The Kellogg's has now said they're going to like hire a lot of scabs. And so there's been some organized... Um, ways to uh kind of sabotage the Kellogg's organizing scabs like they're they're putting out a lot of um what are those called <laughs> job applications and um folks can fill those out um yeah and for more of a background I think I've played it on the show before but also just wanted to share uh, interviews with folks who are working at Kellogg's uh, it's important to hear from them Directly. Be mine. Best Let's friend died. Yeah, sorry, beginning here. We feed all these families, but I can't feed mine. You know, best friend died. Yeah, sorry, not my problem. That's yours. We got cereal to make. The workers behind Fruit Loops, Rice Krispies, and Frosted Flakes are on strike. 
we work seven days a week. We are literally scheduled seven days a week. For any time that someone would feel sick or whatever, they want you to use your vacation days as opposed to having sick days. And again, in working excess of 120 days in a row. Despite record profits, Kellogg's wants to slash their pay and benefits. $400 million in profit on cereal alone is not something you can walk in and tell us we're going to give you less for. If you don't be here, you get a point. If you get a point, you can get suspended. You know what I mean? So we got no choice. You have to be here. But it's just killing us. You know, you can't even now go in there and tell them that your aunt passed away and you need a day off to tell you to call in or use a vacation day. So in order for me to get a day off, someone else is working 16 hours. Very often, we don't even know that we have to work 16 hours until 10 minutes before it's time to go home. If you have dogs, if you have kids you have to pick up from school, if you have other obligations, I hope you have somebody to call because you have to stay. They could tell me at 1045, Heather, you're forced over, you have to stay. So then I'll work that next shift. At 6.30 a.m., I can go home. But then my regularly scheduled shift is starts at 2.30 the next day. So there's eight hours off in between, and that's uh, that, according to them, is plenty. On October 5th, with their contract expiring, workers at every U.S. Kellogg's factory walked, cereal factory walked out. Management has proposed cuts to wages, health care, and retirement benefits. They want to take our cost of living away. They want to take our vacations. They want to take our holiday pay away. They want to take away any kind of ability for new people to come in to have what we have. We're done, you know, just giving up I have a little bit of a buffering issue here, so hopefully this will... Session by concession, we're done being bullied by a company that makes millions and millions and, you know, gives out... All right, I'm going to pause this for a little bit, and perhaps we'll finish it a little bit later after it's loaded a little bit more, having a little bit of technical issues here, but you get the idea, so... Continue, please do continue to boycott Kellogg's. And up next, have another article I did want to share. Oh, goodness. I'm going to take a deep breath. Uh, oof. These are, oof. These are, these are all pretty rough. So, um, yeah, let's see. Let's see. Where can we go to next? And we also have some information to share as well. Trying to get all these up and running, so we'll be ready to go, hopefully seamlessly throughout the show. Thanks again for listening. Oh, here's something positive. Breaking. UC agrees to recognize SRU, UAW in its entirety. This historic victory was brought about by the tireless efforts of thousands of SRs, and those are student researchers, who organized to win a union and a direct response to our massive strike authorization vote. Now let's win a strong contract for all student researchers. And for all these um, articles that we share and little snippets, we have uh, show notes, and those will be available at weeklyrev.org. Those should be up towards the end of the show. And also, if you'd like to listen to the show again and or share it with folks, we'll be providing a link to that as well uh, at the end of the day when it's uploaded on the website. Do I have stories about cops being assholes? Yeah, of course. 
thanks for asking. Um, I know it's kind of a thing here, but it's just uh, how things are. You know, it's uh, uh, just pick a pick a random city in the United States, and I'm sure you'll find some information about their cops being uh, behaving horribly. And this comes from the LA Times. Torrance police traded racist homophobic texts. Hmm, that sounds a lot like the San Francisco Police Department. I'm sure plenty of others as well. It could jeopardize hundreds of cases. Uh, so this came out on December 8th. It was written by James Queeley. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. So the article, I'm just going to summarize and we'll post a link to it, does contain some of the words and phrases that they that the Torrance Police Department have used um, targeted at black people and as well as LGBTQ folks and uh, I'll read a little bit of oh god oh also Jewish people LGBTQ folks black folks um, pretty fucking disgusting um, Let's read a little bit from the article. Still, in the span of one week in November, the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office received about 300 letters from prosecutors disclosing potential misconduct by officers implicated in the scandal. The Judith Green, an office spokeswoman, um, before that, uh, in total, officers were listed as potential witnesses in nearly 1,400 cases in the last decade, according to District Attorney's records. The Times obtained through a public records request. The officers did not necessarily testify in each case. So it's unclear how many of those cases would be affected. And oh, I guess I'm reading the article backwards. So I'm going backwards in the in the paragraphs here. Uh, while no officers currently face criminal charges in direct relation to the text messages, the racist exchanges have led to the dismissal of at least 85 criminal cases involving the officers implicated in the scandal. County prosecutors have tossed 35 felony cases as of mid-November. And the Torrance City Attorney's Office has dismissed an additional 50, officials said. And let's scroll down a little bit further. Um, uh, further down in the article, it says, Since 2013, the group of officers identified by the Times has been involved in at least seven serious use of force incidents in Torrance and Long Beach, including three that ended in the deaths of Black and Latino men, according to police use of force records and court filings. Although the officers' actions were found to be justified in each case, experts say those cases should be reexamined in the context of the hateful messages. Of course. Uh, what those text messages revealed was an extraordinarily hostile attitude towards people of color, people who are non-binary, people who have different sexual orientations, said Walter Katz, a former independent police auditor in California who now serves as a vice president of criminal justice for research firm Arnold Ventures. I don't know that we can take anything they've said at face value. That's for damn sure. Two of the officers under investigation as part of the scandal, Anthony Chavez and Matthew Concanon, are also under investigation for a controversial 2018 slaying of Christopher DeAndre Mitchell, a black car theft suspect they fatally shot while he was holding an air rifle. Chavez and Concanon were cleared of wrongdoing by former district attorney Jackie Lacey, but the case is one of several that Gascon has hired a special prosecutor to review for possible criminal charges. Several of the officers have also been named as defendants in lawsuits alleging excessive force, false arrest, and wrongful death, court filings show. In some of those cases, the plaintiffs are members of the same ethnic groups the officers espoused hatred for in the texts. Gascon has already publicly identified two of the men involved in the scandal as former officers Cody Weldon and Christopher Tomsick, 
who were charged in August with conspiracy and vandalism for allegedly spray painting a swastika inside a vehicle. When Gascon charged Officer David Chandler with assault in late August for allegedly shooting an armed man in the back, sources told the Times that Chandler was also under, under investigation as part of the scandal. In addition to Weldon, Tomsick, and Chandler, the Times has reviewed district attorney's records detailing racist texts or images shared by six other police officers, Blake Williams, Brian Kawamoto, Joshua Satterfield, Omar Alonzo, Christopher Allen Young, and Long Beach police officer Maxwell Schroeder, who is a former Torrance police recruit. Concanon Chavez and fellow Torrance police officers Andrew Kissinger, that's a great last name for you, and Enrique Villegas are also under investigation as part of the scandal, according to three people with direct knowledge of the case and a review of district attorney's records. The Times did not independently view documentation of racist text messages sent by any of those four officers though the newspaper did review a document that showed Con Cannon sent messages that are part of the investigation. The identities of all 13 officers named in this article were confirmed by three people with direct knowledge of the case and by reviewing district attorney's records that detailed some of the officers' comments. Those people spoke on the condition of anonymity so that they could candidly discuss an ongoing investigation. The text messages were not on one continuous thread, According to two of the sources, additional officers received the text but did not interact with them in any way, so they are not considered under investigation, those sources said. The exact number of officers involved in the scandal is unclear. Sergeant Mark Pon Pongalic, a Torrance police spokesman, could not confirm or deny the identities of the officers involved, but said 15 have been placed on administrative leave in relation to the scandal. That number did not include Tom Sick, Weldon, or Schroeder, he said. The Times identified 13 officers in its investigation, including Tom Sick, Weldon, and Schroeder, meaning there are an additional five Torrance officers under investigation whose identities remain unknown to the public. A Long Beach police spokesman said Schroeder was assigned to desk duty pending the, the outcome of an internal investigation, but would not say why. The officers either declined to comment through their attorneys or did not respond to messages left by the Times at their homes or through their union the Torrance Police Officers Association, which represents rank-and-file officers. An attorney for the union said the officers were barred from commenting on the investigation. The current administrative investigations are confidential. As such, we do not have access to facts of the underlying investigation or the alleged inappropriate materials. We expect that as police officers, our members should be treated like any other citizen, considered innocent until proven guilty, the union said in a statement. Our members have a right to. I'm just gonna, as if, like police actually consider other people to be uh, civilians to be innocent when they're going out fucking killing people. Okay, that's my comment. Let me finish this up. Our members have a right to due process and should be protected from illegal and unnecessary intrusion into their private lives. That's just so fucking hypocritical. I can't even. I can't even. Okay, the text messages might have remained hidden if not for the alleged bizarre actions of Tomsick and Weldon in January 2020. The two officers responded to a report of mail theft in the South Bay City and directed a car linked to the crime to be towed from the scene, authorities said. The pair allegedly sprayed, uh, spray-painted a swastika and a happy face inside the vehicle, according to a criminal complaint. District attorney's records reviewed by the Times showed Tomsick sent a slew of racist images and messages, including a picture of former President Reagan Oh, God. Gross. Oh, fucking. Okay, I'm not going to read this fucking bullshit, racist bullshit that they did. 
It's fucking disgusting. Torrance police officials uh, acquired evidence of the text message threads uh, during their investigation. Oof. And it's quite a long article, so I'm going to scroll down. Uh, I feel like folks here get the gist of it. And it also reminds me, I was walking in Oakland the other day, and on Telegraph Avenue around 25th, 26th Street, there were swastikas that were painted um, in the like in the area right when you start the, the crosswalk, the, um, the accessibility dip in the sidewalk. So if anyone has any paint and wants to paint those over, um, please do that. I did not have anything on me to do that, but I would have gladly done that. And also, one of the thoughts I had as to who did that was like, hmm, I wonder if the uh, police are around here doing that. Because clearly, that's a thing of theirs. All right. Um, so, ugh, just fucking disgusting behavior. Um, even more so that these are people who are, quote unquote, you know, we're, we're told in this country that they're here to protect us, yet they don't. They cause great harm. And our tax dollars go to pay them. And it's fucking disgusting. Okay. Can I take a deep breath? There's another article um, that's on the same theme. So we're going to go right into that, and then I'll take a music break. And this is from the Washington Post. FBI may shut down police use of force database due to lack of police participation, which is shocking, I know. I hope you're all sitting down for that, because that was I was really just like so surprised when I read that. And also, a few years ago, The Guardian, for a few years, had they had a site called The Counted, which... Um, had demographics of all the police killings, at least that were reported in the United States. And it was definitely like around a thousand each year. And those are just the ones that we knew about. And they stopped doing it, I think around 2016. Um, however, there've been several other, and you know, things are pretty fucked up ones like the FBI who are the ones who are uh, trying to go after the police. All right. Police data must cover 60% of all local and federal officers, but has not reached that level in the first two years of the program. And I'll read as much of this as I'm able to. I forgot to provide a trigger warning ahead of time because we're talking about these fucking monsters here. But um, yeah, it's from the Washington Post, written by Tom Jackman, and it came out yesterday. In an attempt to create a definitive database on how often police officers use force on citizens, the FBI launched the National Use of Force Data Collection Program in 2019, imploring police departments to submit details on every incident. Why would they do that? Why would they turn themselves in? I don't know. Not just fatal shootings. Uh, but the failure of police and federal agencies to send their data to the FBI puts the program in jeopardy of being shut down next year without ever releasing a single statistic, a new report by the Government Accountability Office says. The program was required but to obtain data presenting 60% of law enforcement officers to meet a standard of quality set by the Office of Management and Budget or else stop the effort by the end of 2022. In 2019, the data covered 44% of local state federal, and tribal officers, and last year, the total increased to 55%, according to the program's website. So far this year, the data represents 57% of all officers, the FBI said Wednesday. Due to insufficient participation from law enforcement agencies, the GAO wrote, the FBI faces risks that it may not meet the participation thresholds established by OMB, and therefore may never publish use of force incident data. The Justice Department said in its response to the report that the FBI believes the agreed-upon thresholds will be met to allow the data collection to continue and is taking steps to increase participation in data collection efforts. The response by Assistant Attorney General Lee J. Loftus also said that the Justice sent a letter to federal law enforcement agencies encouraging their participation. <sighs> 
On Wednesday, the FBI said in an emailed response to questions that each day is a new snapshot in time and that as of October 18th, the data represented 54% of officers. But by Wednesday, the participation rates are at 57.15% for 2021, the FBI said. I'd be surprised if they don't make it to 60%, said Bill Brooks, chief of the Norwood Mass Police and a member of the International Association of Chiefs and Police Board of Directors. He said a key problem is that many agencies uh, have that have no force incidents are failing to p- input zero reports each month, so the agency is counted as not participating. Uh-huh. The IACP has long supported the data collection, and low participation numbers make us look like we're hiding something, when in reality, I don't think that's the case. Well, I'm... I'm going to say I do think that's the case. As of September 30th, 81% of federal officers were represented in the data, even though only 43 of 114 federal agencies, or about 38%, had participated by then, according to the FBI website. Two of the largest federal agencies, the Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection, boo, gross, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, boo, gross, don't like you, um, have been sending in data this year, but the Justice Department's largest agency, the Bureau of Prisons, had not. Oh, my gosh. Oh, reminding me of how many uh, how many of these groups I despise. The GAO report also says that the Justice Department has largely ignored a requirement included in the 1994 Crime Bill to acquire data about the use of excessive force by the law enforcement officers, and shall publish an annual summary of the data acquired. No such summary has been published in the last and at least the past five years. The GAO found Justice Department officials suggested that the GAO to the GAO that the National Use of Force Program could provide the, that data, but the program does not differentiate between incidents involving reasonable force and those involving excessive force. <sighs> the impetus for the Use of Force data program was the fact that no government agency was tracking how often police killed civi- citizens. How much fucking money does the government fucking have? How many people working for it? And you can't keep track of how many people <laughs> that the state kills? Good. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, because that's the ones doing it. But (sighs) law enforcement officials, criminologists and other policing experts said solid data was needed to know just how often police use force and whether high profile incidents such as the killing of Eric Garner in New York, Laquan McDonald in Chicago and Tamir Rice in Cleveland all in 2014 were aberrations or the norm. Transparency and police data are what lead to accountability, said Nancy Lavigne. Uh, executive director of the Council on Criminal Justice's Task Force on Policing last summer. When you don't know what use of force cases are happening, it's difficult to know if you're making improvements. The Washington Post began tracking fatal police shootings in 2015 through media reports and information from police. The Post has found roughly 1,000 fatal shootings per year, more than twice what was being reported annually to the FBI through its Uniform Crime Reporting System. In 2016, the FBI declared its intent to start capturing its own data. Then FBI Director James B. Comey said Americans actually have no idea whether the number of black people or brown people or white people uh, being shot by police has gone up or down, or if any group is more likely to be shot by police given the incomplete data available. Uh, The FBI conducted a pilot program to collect data in 2017 and opened it up to all law enforcement agencies in 2019, and the request for data is not minimal. The FBI wants the location and circumstances of every force incident and detailed information on both the subject and the officers involved. 
The FBI has said it will not publicly report data from any specific agency or incident, only by state. The OMB has said no data can be released if less than 40% of all officers are covered. If up to 59 of all officers are covered, the FBI may publish limited information, the OMB said, such as the injuries an individual received in the use of force incident and the type of force that the law enforcement officer used. If more than 60% of officers are covered by the data, the FBI may publish the most frequently reported responses to questions expressed in either ratios, percentages, or in a list format. At 80% of officers, the FBI may unconditionally publish collected data, the OMB said. Although the response rate covered 44% of officers in 2019 and 55% last year, the FBI has not released any use-of-force information so far. The names of participating agencies and the number of participants per state are available on the FBI website. The number of agencies participating has steadily risen, the FBI's website shows, from 27% of the state and local police departments in 2019 to nearly 41% of departments so far this year. The FBI estimates there are 18,514 state, local, tribal, and federal police agencies in the United States. Wow. With a total of 860,000 sworn police employees. Those are a lot of people who could be doing other things in the world, I think, to help people. And that's the thing, too. It's like... uh, that's what happens when you provide a, a job that involves causing harm to people. I mean, imagine paying people to do things that actually help. Oh, my. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. The article goes on. It's a few more paragraphs. I think folks get the gist of it, and we'll also post a link to it on our page, weeklyrev.org. And yikes. How are you going to, I mean, how are you going to expect criminals to turn themselves in? That's my question. How about some nice music, though, to uh, cleanse the palate, as it were? This is a song by uh, Sly and Robbie, one of whom passed away recently. It's called Burial Dub.
Hi, Ooh, and welcome back to the weekly review with Roman. Heard some music there. We heard Burial Dub by Sly and Robbie, Freelance by Toro E. Moa, and The Only Heartbreaker by Mitski. And got some more news stories, and interesting to see how everything's connected by interesting, sometimes depressing, but also illuminating. And whew. All right, so next up is uh, about what's going on with journalism and journalists these days. Uh, things are not going so well. Uh, this is a recent story. This is from, uh, or local, I should say, also recent, uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. Press advocates warn of chilling effect after North Bay journalist arrested at Sausalito homeless encampment. This is written by Lauren Hepler. Came out on December 4th. Ugh. And the photo features two fucking, pay, excuse me, cops. One's wearing a mask, one isn't. Uh, standing in front of uh, some shelter that folks have, an encampment. A North Bay journalist was arrested while documenting homelessness in Sausalito this week, triggering warnings about police overreach from press freedom groups and marking the latest escalation in a decades-long conflict over local housing. Jeremy Porchi, a veteran freelance photojournalist, was charged with two misdemeanors and a felony related to resisting arrest, then released on $15,000 bail on Monday. His defense attorney, Charles Dresso, told The Chronicle. The arrest, first reported by Marin County Weekly newspaper The Pacific Sun, followed a partially filmed struggle over Porchi's camera and other equipment that he has used while making a documentary about homelessness in the country. The incident is the latest example in of mounting tension over encampments across California, which has threatened to boil over in recent months in the affluent waterside suburb of Sausalito. Homeless activists sued earlier this year over the relocation of a large encampment to Marinship Park, where Porchi was arrested. Multiple local publications have also reported investigations underway on public employees accused of assaulting homeless residents or housing activists. Attacking a journalist is the crescendo of governmental arrogance that they can get away with anything down there, Dresso said. Sausalito Mayor Jill Hoffman told the Chronicle that Police Sergeant Thomas Georges was injured during the incident. <laughs> Good. Uh, she told Porche was charged with battery on a police officer, battery on a police officer requiring medical treatment and resisting a law enforcement officer with violence and said the incident had been sent to the Maine County, or excuse me, Marin County District Attorney's Office for review and prosecution. The Sausalito Police Department did not respond to multiple requests for comment late Saturday. In a video of Porche's arrest posted by the Pacific Sun, the journalist can be heard asking, what am I being charged with? While he is on both knees and two police officers appear to restrain his hands behind his back, push his head down and attempt to remove a black bag from his shoulder. A third officer can be seen blocking the scene with both arms extended while people surrounding the camera chant let him go and yell, don't hurt him. A witness identified as a volunteer at the encampment told the Pacific Sun that before the arrest, one of the police officers was blocking Porchy's camera and that there was a struggle over the camera where a police officer was hit in the face and then started punching Porchy. The Chronicle was unable to reach Porchy. The police or other eyewitnesses late Saturday to confirm the details previously reported. Why are they doing this? Porchy asked the crowd at one point, because I asked them questions. Dresso said that Porchy was previously filed, had previously filed public records requests related to some of the officers involved in the arrest. Hmm. Uh, though the details of those requests could not be confirmed late Saturday, any retaliation for seeking public information would take the case to another level, said David Snyder, an attorney and executive director of the First Amendment Coalition. As it stands, Snyder said he is still working on independ to independently verify the facts of the case, 
but is particularly concerned by initial reports that Porchy's equipment was confiscated. Under California's Reporters' Shield Law, he said, law enforcement is barred from seizing or reviewing journalists' notes and records. Those materials are sacrosanct under California law, Snyder said. When they're seized pursuant to arrest, that's really troubling. Both Snyder and Dresso said they are concerned about the constitutionality of the arrest since Porchy was recording on public property for his job protected under the First Amendment. Snyder adds that reporters have faced an extraordinary level of hostility from police and others during recent events like last year's protests against police brutality. Attacking and arresting a journalist will have a chilling effect, Dresso said. And San Francisco Chronicle reporter Lauren Hernandez contributed to this report, and we'll share a link to this on our site at weeklyrev.org. And unfortunately, it's not surprising at all. And it's just in theme. See how everything is fucking connected. Ugh. Okay. This is going to lead us into our next article. Um, So a number of jailed journalists reached global high in 2021. At least 24 killed for their coverage. And this is from the... um, this is from Reuters, which is like the most middle of the road publication you can find here. So this is just like, yeah. and this was written by uh, Helen Coster, and you could find it at Reuters.com, and we'll also share a link. Um, December 9th, the number of journalists worldwide who are behind bars reached a global high in 2021, according to a new report from the nonprofit Committee to Protect Journalists, which says that 293 reporters were imprisoned as of January 1st this year. At least 24 journalists were killed because of their coverage, and 18 others died in circumstances that make it too difficult to determine whether they were targeted because of their work, the CPJ said on Thursday in its annual survey on press freedom and attacks on the media. And then they have a a chart here. It says journalists killed in 2021. I'm going to make it a little bit larger, so hopefully I can read it. Uh, According to a recent report released by the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 42 Journalists have been killed globally this past year as of December 1st, 2021. That says 42 and before it says 24. Um, Number of journalists killed per country. And it's a little bit, I wish I could make this graph larger, but it's only making the article larger. Oh, it says 42. Um, According to a recent report released, uh, at least 42 journalists have been killed globally this year. Looks like in Mexico, it looks like nine, India, five, Pakistan, looks like two, and Afghanistan, four. Um, let's see. I am going to see if I can open this image because I don't want to give the wrong numbers. Okay. Oh, much better. Yes. Yeah, so Afghanistan, there have been four. Um, in Pakistan, there's three, India, five, and Mexico, nine. Uh, note, the report does not include journalists who died of illness or were killed in car or plane accidents unless the crash was caused by hostile action. And this is uh, the, the source's Committee to Protect Journalists. Let's get back to this article. Uh, while the reasons for jailing reporters varies between countries, the record number reflects political upheaval around the world and a growing intolerance of independent reporting, according to the U.S.-based nonprofit. This is the sixth year in a row that CPJ has documented record numbers of journalists imprisoned around the world, said CPJ Executive Director Joel Simon in a statement. The number reflects two inextricable challenges. Governments are determined to control and manage information, and they are increasingly brazen in their efforts to do so. Okay, and then here's another chart. Let me uh, open this up in another page so I can see it. 
better. Okay, so this is all right. Two hundred ninety-three journalists remain imprisoned as of December twenty, September first, twenty twenty-one. The highest ever since the organization started tracking the imprisonment of journalists in nineteen ninety-two, and it has where journalists are imprisoned. Uh, it doesn't have anything listed for the U.S. However, um, based on the article I just read, I feel like there might be a few that are not being counted. Uh, Cuba, there's three. Nicaragua, two. Brazil, one. Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, one. Eritrea, 16. Rwanda, seven. Ethiopia, nine. Somalia, two. Saudi Arabia, 14. Bahrain, six. Iran, 11. Turkmenistan, one. Saudi Arabia, one. India, seven. Myanmar, 26. Cambodia, four. Vietnam, 23. Philippines, one. And I feel like in the Philippines also, I've heard there should be, I think there'd be more. Bangladesh, one. China, 50. Russia, 14. Also, I would imagine there'd be more there. Iraq, four. Um, Kazakhstan, one. Uzbekistan, two. Azerbaijan, two. Syria, four. Jordan, one. Turkey, 18. Belarus, 19. Israel, two. thought there'd be more there as well. Algeria, two. Mar Morocco, three. Egypt, 25. Nigeria, one. Benin, two. Cameroon, six. Central African Republic, one. Um, okay. And so these are just the ones that are reported. Then they also have a chart. Um, Figures are a snapshot of those in prison at the time of publication of each CPJ report. Yeah, I'm just really, I find it really interesting, especially that the U.S., uh, that they don't, they don't show any from the U.S. Um, interesting, interesting. Okay. Uh, the journalists who were killed in 2021 include Danish Siddiqui, a Reuters photographer who died in a Taliban attack in Afghanistan in July, and Gustavo Sanchez Cabrera, who was shot and killed in Mexico in June. China imprisoned 50 journalists, the most of any country, followed by Myanmar 26, which arrested reporters as part of a crackdown after its February 1st military coup, then Egypt 25, Vietnam 23, and Belarus 19, the CPJ said. Then they have another chart of journalists imprisoned. Uh, for the first time, CPJ's list includes journalists incarcerated in Hong Kong, a byproduct of the 2020 national security law, which makes anything Beijing regards as subversion, secession, Terrorism or colluding with foreign forces punishable up for up to by up to life in prison. Mexico, where journalists are often targeted when their work upsets criminal gangs or corrupt officials, remains the Western Hemisphere's deadliest country for reporters, according to CPJ. Okay, now there's something with the U.S. Journalists killed around the world. Hmm. All right, let's open this up in a new tab. And again, I'll be showing this article uh, on our page so folks can look at that as well. Uh, number of journalists killed per country, U.S. 11, Mexico 66, Colombia 53, Brazil 42, Nigeria 12. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, so there's a chart for that as well. I'll share that. And um, yeah, okay. Oof, that's, that's pretty rough. All right. Um, so interesting how in the headline it says 24, then in the article it says 42. So we'll share a link to that at weeklyrev.org. Yikes. Okay. Um, with that note, I think it's time for, how about um, palate cleanser of sorts? Um, how about some Kate Bush, right? Um, here's a song that I believe her son sang on. It's called Snowflake. It's a long song, very artsy, very beautiful, and putting some beauty back out into the world. I was born 
wanted me to grab the nine, run up on them quick and put it to his mind. I'm out here struggling, trying to get myself a plate. Barely eating on the state, homie, grab me a name. Trying to escape, feeling lost in this hell. Can you relate to getting tossed in a cell? Without a dime, a lot of times we turn to crime. Feeling desperate and broke. When all we need is a lot less stress and some hope. So where's the peace? And can I get me a slice? You ain't never been successful. Wanna give me advice? No looking back. I'm cooking wraps on the couch. Feeling down. Cause I'm knowing better than half that's out. Getting hurt, giving words for a couple of reasons. First the therapy, but buys my mind when the seasons fluctuate. Frustrated when I feel your open eyes. Me joke around, I never do. Slow that down. I told you probably not a town. It's the city, go ill. Flow fill the void. Them boys just roll kill. Hold still with your hate, homie. Pause that doubt. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I show and prove. No end dues gotta be paid. I humbly grind. Thankful for beautiful souls on this ugly climb. I know the beast won't speak straight around the streets. But still, I gotta ask y'all, where's the peace? Huh? Where's the peace? I wanna see it in the sky. Where's the peace? Go ahead, put it in the sky. Ain't no peace in my people. Snowflake, then Gang of Youths with Ten Garden, and then Where's the Peace by Longshot, Laserbeak, and uh, Kaya Luna, it looks like. Let me click on that once more. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to uh, see the full name of the artists, especially when there's more than one. Cat uh, Luna. All right. So I've got a few more news articles for you and some upcoming events helpful to stay informed and this is an event that's happening on december 23rd caging childhood screening and q a with defense for children international palestine this is happening thursday december 23rd 
uh, from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, join If Not Now in Defense for Children International Palestine on Thursday, December 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern for a screening of Caging Childhood, a short documentary that shares the stories of three Palestinian children in the occupied West Bank and their experiences being detained, interrogated, prosecuted, and imprisoned in the Israeli military detention system. Since 2000, over 13,000 Palestinian children in the West Bank have been arrested and held in the Israeli military detention system that denies them their basic rights. This systemic systematic traumatization of children does nothing for Jewish safety. Instead, it further entrenches a system of brutal occupation, dispossession, and oppression. Any person with a moral backbone should condemn the detention of Palestinian children as part of the fight for equality and dignity for all. So we will provide a link to that um, on our page at weeklyrev.org. So you can put that in your calendar and check it out. Again, it's happening on Thursday, December 23rd from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <clears throat> Next up, we've got a bit of an infographic here. I saw this on Twitter, um, which, and the caption is, Jeff Bezos's nine-minute joyride to the edge of space created more carbon emissions than one billion people produce in an entire lifetime. So instead of getting angry at some folks for drinking almond milk, looking at myself in the mirror, uh, maybe we should uh, be looking at Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Uh, how much CO2, and this is from, well, I'm not sure the uh, full article it's from, but it's uh, the, the title is Carbon Footprints of the Very Wealthy. How much CO2 do the wealthiest individuals on Earth emit? Our estimates show that emissions can reach extreme levels. The global top 1% of individuals emit around 100 tons on average, the top 0.1%, 467 tons. The top 0.01%, 2,530 tons per person per annum. These emissions stem both from individual consumption and from the investments they make. There are variations within each group. Certain very wealthy individuals invest in less carbon-intensive activities than others and consume fewer carbon-intensive goods. On average, however, the answer is quite clear. Extreme wealth comes with extreme pollution. Our estimates... Excuse me. This is what happens when I eat mid-podcast. Uh, our estimates should be interpreted with care, given the difficulty of properly assessing the carbon content of wealth and the carbon embedded in consumption. But our approach is rather conservative. We tend to underestimate the carbon footprint associated with extreme wealth rather than overestimate it. Perhaps the most conspicuous illustration of extreme pollution associated with wealth inequality in recent years is the development of space travel. Space travel is expected to cost from several thousand dollars to several dozen million dollars per trip. An 11-minute flight emits no fewer than 75 tons of carbon per passenger once indirect emissions are taken into account, and more likely in the 250 to 1,000 ton range. At the other end of the distribution, about 1 billion individuals emit less than 1 ton per person per year. Over their lifetime, this group of 1 billion individuals does not emit more than 75 tons of carbon per person. It therefore takes a few minutes in space travel to emit at least as much carbon as an individual from the bottom billion will emit in her entire lifetime. This example shows that there is scarcely any limit to the carbon emissions of the ultra-wealthy. 
the fact that Jeff Be- Bezos feels safe enough to walk around without being undisturbed is a moral feeling on this country. Whew. All right. Speaking of moral feelings, I wonder if this Kellogg's video is still loading. Let's see if we can pick up from before. Again, this is about folks at Kellogg's who are on strike. Let's see if we can listen to it uninterrupted. Makes millions and millions and, you know, gives out billions of dollars in, in dividends. In 2015, Kellogg's created a tier of traditional workers who do the same jobs but get paid less. They were supposed to eventually become legacy employees with full benefits. That direct path to full-time employment, these trans... Oh, yeah, it looks like... Officials uh, never yeah. saw it. Being a transitional, we pay for our health care. Our wages are different. We don't get a pension like everybody else does. There is no difference between the guy that works right next to me tomorrow or 10 years from now. There's no reason why that guy should have a lower benefit level, a lower retirement level than what I do. Kellogg's is trying to remove the limit it originally put on the number of transitional workers it can hire, threatening the livelihoods of future Kellogg's employees. That's why we are striking, because we want the better pay, pension for everybody. It's not for only one group. I have this job because people like my dad that worked here before me for 34 years didn't give up stuff coming in. Kellogg's CEO Steve Cahill, excuse me, um, Cahillane made $11.6 million in 2020. Holy shit. A lot of fucking money. Meanwhile, Kellogg's is cutting 212 jobs at its Battle Creek plant over the next two years. We're just kind of over your number. We hear every day, and then today they're trying to tell us we make too much money. They want to complain about what our wage is and they want to talk about what our wage is well if you didn't make me work every single saturday and sunday if you didn't make me work work every single holiday my annual income wouldn't be at these levels that you you don't want to go spread around like it's a bad thing the contract it doesn't lend itself to future generations of sustainability here i'm second generation. My father worked here. I'm not the only one. It's kind of a way of life, and we don't want to rob that from the next generation. We've been asked about how long we're willing to fight, and at the end of the day, it's going to be one day longer than they are. Mm. So we'll share a link to this on our website, nuclearrev.org. Okay. And... Next up, another video. Let's see. Let's hopefully, hopefully this one will play without too many interruptions. And this is from Races, which is R A I C E S, from an email I received recently. Um, uh, I'll read the email. Roman, my name is Christian Sanchez. I'm a supervising attorney at Races, and I work to stop deportations of asylum seekers, including those who have faced horrific marginalization and exploitation as members of the LGBTQ plus community. Taking on a case can save someone's life and reunite them with the people they love most, and that is really important to me. At Races, we reunite families and protect people from persecution. And they have the video below to learn more about um, Christian and the work that Christian does to advocate for our clients as they go through the asylum process. I'm brought to another link here. And if you go to racestexas.org, that's R-A-I-C-E-S-T-E-X-A-S.org, you can find 
this info. All right. And it's a little over a minute long, about a minute and a half. And the site also has other ways you can take action, updates, you can donate, more. My name is Christian. I'm a supervising attorney at Raices, and I work to stop deportations. I work with all sorts of clients, families, single adults, children. It's the goal of our team to represent some of the most marginalized asylum seekers because they're the people that might not be able to find a private attorney and pay thousands of dollars for representation. The asylum process takes months or years, and in that time, I become really close with my clients and I fight for them as if they were a member of my own family. I'm from the Rio Grande Valley, which is on the border and is majority Latinx. And I've seen the way that the immigration system disrupts the community and tears families apart. And I really want to fight back against that system. So I really make it a focus of my clients to listen to them, to listen to what their objectives are and their aims are and what they want, and to empower them to tell their story and feel some sort of agency in this process. The work of Raices is bringing families together and protecting people from persecution. That's really what we do, and that's the heart of the work, and that is what drives us forward to continue representing and protecting and empowering our clients. All right, so you can join our hashtag fight for families at racestexas.org, and that's R-A-I-C-E-S-T-E-X-A-S.org, and we'll share a link to that on our page as well. Also want to share another event that's coming up here in San Francisco on December 14th, which is Tuesday, No Cuts to Classrooms Rally. And this was shared by the San Francisco Labor Council um, at SF Labor. Follow them here on Twitter. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. A lot of the stories that I share here on the show are ones I've read during the week. And uh, follow me at, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And they say, join UESF and SF Labor for a no-cuts rally. We call on educators, staff, students, and families from across the school district to rally outside 555 Franklin for a no-cuts rally. The more of us that show up, the louder our message will be. Bring your signs and colleagues. No cuts to classrooms. And I'll share this uh, infographic on our page as well. Uh, 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, December 14th, 555 Franklin. SFUSD management is proposing massive cuts that eliminate positions at school sites. No, we don't want that. The BOE will consider an alternative plan that doesn't cut from classrooms, rally to demand the school board do the right thing and keep cuts away from our students and classrooms. And then you can join them at, or join us, I should say, at bit.ly forward slash no cuts FB event. And my guess is that's going to be the, uh, the, the Facebook event. Woo. Yeah, getting to that point where I'm woo-woo. Um, yeah, feeling a little bit loopy here. Uh, getting towards the end of the show. We still have about 20 more minutes left. Got some music for you. And I think I've gone through most of the articles I wanted to read. I try to go through most of them. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a lot of articles come across during the week and try to do what I feel able to do. So let's take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more. So... Please do stay tuned. The game's turning me. Oh, 
thank God for social media. Hieroglyphically, scientifically speaking, I don't know you, but you know me. Oh, wait. Yeah, no conversation is there. Communication is there. Education is there. Penetration is there. Dedication is there. Revelation is there. Stimulation is there. Vibration is there. Only one push your body. You in a robot for nothing. Education is there, penetration is there, no dedication is there, and no conversation is there, no communication is there, no education is there, penetration is there, no dedication is there. So um, I'm feeling like ready to close out the show. I'm just going to play some music for the next uh, 10, 15 minutes or so. Big thank you so much for listening in. Totally appreciate it. And uh, please do check out our website, weeklyrev.org. Also check out all the other shows here, mediaradio.fm. We've got a Patreon up. Please do support the show. I'm going to keep all the website up and running and hopefully filling out previous episode info. So please do donate to the Patreon if you're able, anywhere from $5 a month and up or any really even a dollar a month and up would be super helpful and appreciated. So please do that if you can. And we also will share a list of the, uh, our playlists. So if you enjoy the music, um, and want to listen to the songs again, we have a playlist up as well. You can find it all at weeklyrep.org. I think that's about it. Um, yeah. And last songs we played was upside by Alan stone strangers, uh, by black Pumas featuring Lucius and then Drones um, featuring Kendrick Lamar, and that was by uh, Terrence Martin. And let me bring up the song again because there are a few artists affiliated with it. And that's the one. One of the downsides to this is that it just takes a while to uh, see all the artists. So it's uh, dr the song's called Drones, and it's featuring Kendrick Lamar and Snoop Dogg and Ty Dolla Sign. And it's scrolling very slowly here. James Fonteroy. All right, so we're going to play some more music, and then we'll be back 
uh, won't be here next week, but we'll play uh, have an old show up and running for you all. And hope some of what you heard today will hopefully encourage encourage you to take action in the world and make it a better place for everyone. Aww. All right. Take care, everybody.
at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Let's watch I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the internet ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Hey, Mutineers, Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Since 1971, the San Francisco Tenants Union has been fighting for the rights of tenants and for the preservation of affordable housing in San Francisco. Starting from the struggle for rent control in the 1970s, the Tenants Union has been the city's leading advocate for tenants. The Tenants Union is supported by membership and counseling donations, and this enables advocacy to be uncompromising and not influenced by pressures from government or other funders. It is a 501c4 since it campaigns for political candidates, so generally donations are not tax-deductible, although large donations may qualify. Please visit WFTU.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio, in San Francisco. Black Black Plastic. Mutiny Radio. FM. Saturday. Noon to two. Every Saturday. All music. All night.
ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out aclunc.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Alex! Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives. Smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number four Alta California.